Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome one and all to Storybox, the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning, growth, and you want to improve your life. My name is Jay Phantom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I am truly grateful that you have decided to listen in today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready because you guys are really going to care about my next guest that I have on the Storybox podcast, Mark Manson. You heard me correctly. Mark Manson is a two-time number one New York Times bestselling author whose books have sold well over 13 million copies worldwide. His work has been translated into more than 60 languages and hit the bestseller list in 16 different countries. According to Amazon charts, his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, was the most read nonfiction book in 2017. That's right. You heard me correctly. Mark Manson is the author of the very, very popular The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F and also another very popular book, which um, is about hope or an unconventional method to hoping, at least. Everything is effed. Okay. Um, now, Mark has been published in or featured in over 50 of the biggest newspapers, magazines, and television radio shows on the planet, including NBC, CNN, Fox News, the BBC, Time Magazine, The Legend Larry King, Dr. Oz, The New York Times, New York Post, Vice, Vox, and so many others. He's also been a regular guest on so many different podcasts, one of my favorites, The Aubrey Marcus Show as well. Done three incredible deep dive interviews with with him and I encourage you to listen to to all three of those too. Uh, This was honestly one of my my favorite interviews. Mark is such a down-to-earth, kind, genuine human being whose wisdom and advice really, really hits you. (laughs) <laughs> and I had such a fun time um, being able to speak with Mark. I never thought that this would, this interview would ever be possible because I read his book, The Subtle Art, way back in 2018 and immediately was captivated, struck, uh, challenged. I read it in two days. That's how much of an impact this book made on me, and I don't read many books in two days. Let me just say that, like unless I am so engaged in them, um, and that was what happened with the subtle art. 
And also I don't have that much time too these days, <laughs> but enough excuses. This is an interview that I know so many people are going to love. Uh, there is, don't, don't worry. There is literally no swearing in this. Um, even though you might think, oh, he's got a book that's got the F word in it. There's definitely going to be a lot of swearing. No, no, no. This is uh, as clean as I think you're going to hear Mark Manson <laughs> um, on an interview setting. That's just my personal opinion at least. But we had a lot of fun. We spoke about purpose, what that is, how that translates into society today. Um, he shares a lot of uh, relationship advice as well about love, what you what happens when people break uh, trust and, and love as well and how that really uh, coincides and how you can go about building it up once again. I think that's one of my uh, most interesting uh, topics that I like asking people to see their response because it is a big, big topic. Um, but Mark answers it well. He answers his response to my question was something that I never really thought about before. So I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this this episode. But if you do get something from it, please share it around to your friends and your family. Let them know uh, about this episode. If you do love Mark Manson and his work, then you're going to, I guarantee you, you're going to love this episode. Uh, so much good value in here. So my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to actually give an F, <laughs> if I can say that on here, uh, in the most gentle, kind possible way and dive into the story box with everything is not effed with the incredible Mark Manson and his story. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Um, I've wanted to speak to you ever since I actually read your book and asked you a ton of questions. Um, but the first question that I do want to ask you, which is one that I start off all my conversations with, and I feel like it's a great place to start with you because when I read out your incredible, insane bio, the immediate, the first word that would come to a lot of people's minds is, wow, that guy is successful. And I'm curious, what does success look like for you? Oh, man. Um, you know, it's funny. I feel like I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but then I'm, I'm going to bring it back. Um, <laughs> So, so I lived abroad for many years and, and when I lived abroad, I lived in South America for most of that time for about four or five years. And when I lived in South America, I learned Spanish and Portuguese. And one thing that's really interesting when you study different languages is that you, you discover that, uh, words, there, there are words that we have one word in English. So for instance, the word love, we have one word for love in English, but in, in Spanish or Portuguese, they have like six different words that, and they're very contextual. They're like based on you use this one with your family and this one with your husband or wife and this one with your mistress and this one with your kids, you know, and like, and it's all very um, like laid out for you. And then there's the reverse is true too, is that there are words in, in other languages, they only have one word, but in English we have like seven different words. And, and I discovered, you know, when speaking those other languages, I suddenly felt very limited because it's, you know, the difference between infuriated and angry is like, it, it, it's a significant difference in English, you know, whereas in Portuguese or something, it might come off as kind of the same thing. So anyway, I bring that up because I think success is one of these words that English doesn't really do well with. Um, I, in my head, I, I think there are two separate versions of success. 
Um, one is an internal version and one is an external version. So an external version is kind of your conventional metrics of success, your worldly success, make a bunch of money, win a bunch of accolades, get really popular. Um, the internal version of success is, is, is a much more abstract and personal thing. And it's, to me, it's, um, living in a way that's meaningful or important. Um, doing things that you feel, uh, are, were a good use of your time. And, um, it sounds very kind of vague, but it's actually a very, very difficult thing to do. If you think about most of the things you've done, done in your life, chances are most of them don't necessarily strike you as like the best use of your time. <laughs> and so, um, and so it, I'm kind of like, I'm always trying to think about, um, am I using my time well? Am I living meaningfully and, and uh, purposefully? Mm. Do you feel like you are living your purpose today? I do. I do. Although it, it's a funny thing. It's a moving target, you know? Um, I, you know, I tell people this all the time. It's not like you you know, you pick up a rock and find your life's purpose. And it's like, Oh, I'm set. <laughs> you know, like it's, um, what feels meaningful today, you know, in three or five years, it might not feel meaningful anymore. Um, and so you have to adjust and you have to find something different. Um, or if you think about what you used to find meaningful, say five years ago, chances are you kind of roll your eyes today. So it's this like constant, the seeking never really stops, I think. Which I find very interesting. Uh, so do you think that your purpose is something that you do or more who you are and that is evolving over time? I think it's, it's evolving over time. Because I, I, I think it's, if you think about it, a purpose, it's just a made-up thing. You know, it's like you can, I can decide anything's my purpose. I can decide that, sitting in my underwear playing video games all day. Like that's my life's purpose. I could, I could decide that if I wanted to, um, it might not feel good, but, um, so I, I think it's purpose is it's, uh, you know, what most people mean when they talk about finding purpose, it, I, I believe what they're talking about is doing something they believe is meaningful or find finding something that they believe is meaningful. And, and so it, it's kind of a meaning maximization, this okay. whole like finding purpose thing. Um, and it, it's hard. It's, it's like, it's hard and you're never done. It's kind of like, it's kind of like eating, like you're never done eating. You, you're going to get hungry again. So <laughs> you, you've got to like always be ready for for the next meal or, or to find the next piece of meaning in your life. Mm. It, it's funny because like when I was growing up, I thought that from the age of eight, I thought my purpose was solely to be a filmmaker in Hollywood, to be like the next Steven Spielberg. I mean, I've got pictures of him, his movies on my, on my wall because I idolized him and I thought, you know, well, that's where I'm going. And then when things didn't really work out my way, I felt somewhat lost and I'm like, so what am I going to be doing 
for the rest of my life and I kind of felt miserable, which for a lot of people that actually happens, like especially if they don't do something they feel is quite meaningful for them, that brings about the misery, that brings about the depression, the anxiety, the the worries, all kinds of things. So like it wasn't until I think last year that I sort of realized my my calling, something that made me happy and was actually meaningful, which I've been doing all my life. I just didn't realize it, it hadn't even clicked for me, which was helping people realize that they are worth something through the amazing medium and art of stories. And yeah. like your story, Mark, everything that you've experienced and been through, that's meaningful. You know, so if we can share that and and pass it down to people that might be actually stuck I think that is a purpose. Like that is something worthwhile to be shared and to be experienced even. Um, Absolutely. And I think as well, like I have this, um, this analogy, we've got to learn to distinguish between I am versus I do. And you know, when you're growing up, Mark, I don't, I don't know if you had this happen to you, but when everyone comes up to you and asks, Oh, what do you do? The immediate response most often than not, I used to do this all the time is, Oh, I'm a filmmaker. I replaced the I do with I am. And yeah. the I am became sort of like my identity. So I think once we start changing it to who you are is your character, your integrity, when no one's watching, your value system, everything like that. What you do, that serves it. Like you take who you are into what you do. So yeah. that's, that's how I thought about purpose and identity and everything like that, which is only recent, <laughs> in fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny that um, that question of like, what do you do? I feel like our generation is kind of the first generation that's, that's noticing how awkward that question can be mm. um, because it, it calls it like, it calls in the question a lot of these identity things. You know, a, most people don't, identify with what they do for work um and and then a lot of people uh and then there are a lot of people who wish that they identified with what they do for work but they don't do that for work you know so you get into this years ago like i actually just stopped asking that question and i replaced it with what are your favorite things you know so like when i meet a new person i say like what what are your favorite things in life Mm -hmm. And, and like and it's just like this very broad open-ended question um that that will always lead you it shows you much quicker who the person is Mm. so i'm going to ask you the same question what are some of your favorite things that sort of make you grateful for being here (laughs) uh i'd say travel books um especially like kind of nerdy philosophical psychology books um my wife she's one of my favorite things for sure um and then i guess you know video games sitting in my underwear playing video games all day (laughs) i'd I'd put that up there too (laughs) i know i know quite a few people that would have to agree with you on that front (laughs) Don't, don't worry um I'm curious, Mark, like you mentioned your wife, she's one of your favorite people, I guess, in your life or things. 
how did you meet her firstly? And what are some of the things that you value the most about her? I met my wife. So she's Brazilian and I met her in Sao Paulo in a nightclub at about two in the morning. Um, and it's, it was actually pretty funny. She, uh, she actually kind of shot me down the first time I tried to talk to her. Um, so Brazil, Brazil's, Brazil is a crazy place. It's, uh, so down there it's, they don't really even like the party doesn't even really start. Like, like the time that you and I are going home for the night, like that's when the Brazilians start, you know? So, um, I, I went to this club, this was in 2012. I went to this club with an English friend of mine and, uh, of course, being American and English, we got all dressed up like really nice and uh, showed up at, you know, 11 p.m. And the whole place was empty. Like we were the only two people there. And so we're like standing there awkwardly at the bar ordering drinks. And uh, for like 30 minutes, nobody shows up. And then this group, of the first group of girls that came in, um, I saw my wife and she and I made eye contact. And it was like one of those kind of like hold eye contact you know, little, like longer than normal. And, uh, and I just immediately knew I was like, I, I'm going to go talk to her. Like I flat out, like, I've got to talk to that girl. And, um, so I went and found her maybe like 15 minutes later, by this time there were maybe 20 people in the whole club and she's dancing with her friends. And I went up started trying to talk to her in, in like horrible Portuguese. And she just immediately like, put her hand up and she was like, please, I speak English. And I was like, oh, okay, thank God. And then I started trying, I, I started trying to talk to her and she's kind of like looking off, you know, in the distance, like kind of shrugging, giving me like very non-committal answers. Um, and so I told her, I was like, I was like, you, it seems like you just want to dance with your friends. So it was nice meeting you. Have a nice night. And she was like, oh, okay. Have a nice night. And I like walked away. Um, and that like stunt as a Brazilian that stunned her because I think, you know, Brazilian men tend to like, you know, club women over the head with a, with a club and like carry them over their shoulder, you know, like that's Brazilian flirting, you know? So she was like, wow, this guy like actually respected the fact that I didn't want to talk to him. So like two or three hours later, she, she actually came up to me and, and was like, how's your night going? And I was like, Oh, it's going great actually. And then we started talking and, um, she, uh, we ended up talking all night and then, and then took her out on a date. And, uh, the thing that just blew me away about her is it it's really funny. Actually, she grew up, um, I mean, she's smart. She's very like enthusiastic, excitable. Um, very, very curious about the world. I asked her what her favorite things were. First thing she said was travel. I was like, Oh, what a coincidence. I've been living abroad for seven years. Um, but what blew me away about her, like when I, the moment I was like, wow, she is really special. Um, is I was on a, my first date with her and we were talking about our families as you do on a first date. And she said that she grew up poor in East Sao Paulo. Um, like we're talking dirt roads, no electricity, no telephone line. She didn't get a phone until she was 13. And when I say phone, like a landline, she didn't have a landline until she was 13. Um, 
And she just started telling me the story. I'm like, holy shit, like, how are you here? You know, um, she got a scholarship to like the top university in Brazil when she was 16, um, worked a full-time job at a bank to put herself through school, you know? And so like, she just tells me this whole story. And I'm like, it, it's one of those things you like read about, you know, in a book somewhere. And, uh, I was like, my God, like that's just what that says about her character is just is insane and incredible. And, um, and it was funny too, because it, it, she told me later that she was actually very embarrassed to sit, to tell me about that, that stuff. I think it was a very, it's a cultural thing because in Brazil, there's still very, kind of this embedded, there's like a, a, the rich elite. And then there's like kind of the poor masses and it, and it's like, you're either in the club or you're not. And so she was always very embarrassed because most of the guys she dated down there with were like wealthy guys. And so she was always embar very embarrassed to tell her story. But as an American, I'm like, fuck yeah, that's the American dream, baby. Like you, you're it, you know? And so I was just like, holy shit, this woman is incredible. Um, and it, it just uh, made me so attracted to her. So it was a funny, like, uh, cultural difference there, but, um, but yeah, we've been together ever since. Wow. And <laughs> that's, that's an incredible story. Um, I, I've dated two Latinas, um, both of which you're right. The party doesn't start until 2am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm more of a, a morning person. So I, I get up at like 4am in the morning that she's only going to bed then. <laughs> so it's kind of like, um, I, I can fully understand what you mean, but what I'm fascinated by is what sort of, when was the moment that you knew that you were going to spend the rest of your life with this woman? You know what's funny is like, I... I never had a moment like that. And it's, we've been married for four years now. And I, I still don't know if I've had that moment. And she and I have talked about this. Like, I think it's, we both, one of the things that I think has made the relationship work and, and made it very healthy is that we both very much look at the relationship as something that we continually opt into. Um, that it's, it's, there's almost, um, we don't let our lives be defined by the relationship. And, and, and I know that when I, I went through a very hard time when I, when I was thinking about proposing to her. And I think part of it was because I felt like I, I, sh I should have that moment. You know, I should have that moment where I'm like, this is it. This is the woman for the rest of my life. And actually the thing, you know, and then once I realized I didn't have to have that moment, it actually made me much more okay of like, oh, okay. Like it's the, the marriage is not, uh, it's a commitment to, to try to be together for the rest of your life. It's not a commitment of like necessarily you have to be together for the rest of your life. And, and, and the way I kind of like made that shift, I was actually, it's funny, I was talking to my stepmother and, uh, is probably the only thing my entire life my my stepmother has has said that's like, you know, been a huge like huge <laughs> epiphany. <laughs> I I've told her that too. I'm like, man, it's it's 
it's that that thing you said was like that was the one um but so i was my parents you know they had met my wife a number of times and they really liked her and, and uh and and my stepmom just kept asking me you know she was doing that that parent thing it was like when are you getting married where are you getting married where are you gonna buy a ring and and i was like i don't know and my stepmom was just she had a couple drinks she was like what the hell's the problem what's taking so long and i was like well I don't know if I want to be with her for the rest of my life. And my stepmom just like looked at me like I was an idiot. And she was like, what are you talking about? I've been with your father for 20 goddamn years. I still don't know if I want to be with him for the rest of my life. She's like, you never know. You never figure it out. You just, you get married because you want to keep trying. And I was like, it's like a light bulb, you know? It's like, oh, shit that's what this is about that's what that's what the marriage is about is it's like the commitment to always keep trying to always keep opting in to always keep like to giving it your best effort and then if one day it just breaks and doesn't work you understand that that's okay too is it when like which is a very interesting thought process that i'm quite curious about is it when the relationship breaks, is it like more or less one person, one person breaking, or is it both people? Does it have to be both people or can just, it can just be one person feeling that way? It can be either one. Um, generally it's, it's, let me put it this way. It, you need both both people need to be all in for it to work. So the second one person's not all in, then it can't work. That said, there are often, I'd say in most cases, there are two sides of, of most relationship issues. I, I Probably the most common questions I get from readers uh, over the years is relationship-related issues. And I've, I've years ago, I did quite a bit of relationship coaching um, and it always starts with one person in the relationship coming, saying, my, this is my partner's fault. This is my partner's problem. This is what my partner needs to fix. Mm -hmm. And you dig a little bit deeper and suddenly you realize, oh, no, there's actually a whole nother side to that. And both partners are, are have their own share of, um, I guess the kind of the failure within the relationship. But, um, what I always tell people is that it's, again, it kind of comes back to that opting in, you know, it's a really, you can have problems and survive. You can have breaches of trust. You can have, um, failures, depression, you know, fights, separations, like all you can survive all these things. The only, but the, the thing you can't survive is when one person gives up, stops trying. Like it's, it's when one person says, nope, not going to talk about it. Nope, not going to go to counseling. Nope, not going to admit I did anything wrong. That's when it's, that's when it's over. That's when it's until, until both people are giving it their full committed effort. Um, things don't change. Is it worth being with someone if you don't trust them? <laughs> not for long. Um, it's, you know, you can survive for a little while, uh, but it, it's, if you just don't trust them on like a day-to-day -day basis, then you can't at all.
Um, I tell people, you know, the, the two big breaches of trust that happen is, is cheating and usually money issues. Um, you know, one, one person in the relationship goes out and spends all the money without telling the other one, you know, and it's to, to save a relationship in those situations. The, the first thing you have to do is rebuild the trust. And, uh, and if you can't do that, then, then yeah, it, it can't last. So how do you go about rebuilding the trust? Is that actually possible? Uh, will you always have like that mindset of I won't fully trust this person again? It is possible. It's very difficult though. And I think the analogy I use for trust in a relationship is, is like a China plate, you know, like if you drop or like a vase or something, like if you drop a vase and it breaks into a bunch of pieces, if you're very careful and take your time, you can glue it back together. Um, but if you drop it again, it's going to break into twice as many pieces and it's going to be twice as hard to put it back together. And then if you drop it a third time, it's going to be in so many pieces, you're never going to put it back together again. So, you know, a relationship can survive, you know, one huge breach of trust, maybe two, but if it's like a consistent breach that happens over and over and over again, um, and there's no track record of, you know, people owning up to it, changing their behaviors, things like that. Um, then at a certain point you can't come back from it, but generally the, the way you build it back, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. You know, it's like, if you're going to start trusting somebody again, you need to, uh, uh, you need evidence <laughs> that they're trustworthy. So you need to see them follow through on what they say. Um, you know, generally I think there's, there's kind of, uh, three things that need to happen is, is one is the person who screwed up needs to, to own it, to admit it, to, to apologize, to say like, this is, I've messed up. This is, this is why I'm sorry. Um, the second thing that needs to happen is that they need to have understand why they did what they, you know, like, why did they cheat? You know, why did they go spend all the money? Why did they max out all the credit cards? They need to have a handle on like why they made the decisions they, they made and, and like a plan for how they're going to do it different. Um, and then three is you have to actually see them behaving differently over a period of time. You know, it's like if, if you can get all three of those, if you can get those things like lined up and happening over a period of time, then yeah, the trust can come back. But it's the problem is, is most people who breach your trust, they don't, they don't admit that they, they screwed up. Uh, they have no idea why they made the decisions they made. And, you know, you don't, you don't see them change. Um, and so if that's the case, then yeah, you can't trust them again. Mm -hmm. Which is um, very profound advice. Like that is, <laughs> that is gold. <laughs> um, and okay. So say for, say for example, they, the relationship was to end. Now mm -hmm. I have been in a, in a very difficult situation where uh, I was in a relationship in 2018 and it ended seven months later and I had decided to put all my focus, all my, my entire life plan into this relationship. And when it ended, um, 
I was lost. I was, I didn't want to accept. I couldn't let go of what was actually happening. I couldn't actually accept that it was uh, mm. in my life right then. And what I'm curious about is what is the best way to let go of hurt, of pain, of loss, of suffering, the whole thing? What is, what is your experience or your advice for someone that is going through currently a very difficult period of loss? Yeah. Well, the, the problem with the situation you're describing, and I've written, I've written a few articles about this on my site, is I, so I, I, have this, I have this article called Love is Not Enough. And at the end of the article, I say, um, the, only, the only real way to experience love in your life is to make something else more important than the love in your life. And what I mean by that is that when you make your relationship the highest priority above everything else in your life, above your career, above your friendships, your hobbies, your personal identity, everything, when it becomes kind of like your, to bring it back to that sense of meaning and purpose we were talking about earlier, it's like when your relationship is your core source of meaning and purpose, um, then not only is that damaging for the relationship itself, it makes the relationship actually less likely to succeed. But if it does fail, then you're left in a place where you feel like you have nothing left. Um, and it's, and that's a horrible place to be. And so what I encourage people to do is to find, find something in their life that's more meaningful than that relationship. Um, find something that it feels more important and more worth doing than being with that person. Mm. And because if you can't find that, then the next relationship is going to be just as bad. And, and this is a lot of people who, who go, who, who, do, what happened to you, you know, a lot of people who go through that, their solution is to just find the next person to kind of fill that hole. You know, it's like, all right, I made this person the center of my life in my universe and they left. So let me go find another person to make the center of my universe, you know, to kind of fill that void. And it's like, man, you're just setting yourself up for the exact same pain. And, uh, you know, you need to find, you need to sustain an identity of your own outside of the relationship. Um, something that is, can't be touched by the relationship. Um, one way to think about it is like, a, rela a relationship can only be healthy if the two individuals in it are healthy. And for the two indiv individuals in it to be healthy, they have to have a good relationship with themselves. They need to have meaning and purpose outside of the relationship. Mm. And don't do what I do, what I did, sorry, uh, is try your very best and spend so much energy trying to get that person back. <laughs> oh God. Uh, I know, man. We all, we all do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, We've all done it. We've all very, done it. <laughs> very guilty of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I learned a lot in that whole experience. And like, after I had gone through that like difficult period, I ended up like coming out with, some very important analogies and methods that I yeah. can now use to help other people going through very similar things. So I, I appreciate your advice through all that too. Um, yeah. 
Well, and I'll, I'll say too, that a lot of this comes from experience. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, you, you name, you name like a cringeworthy behavior that you do around an ex. Like I probably did it years ago. So <laughs> it's, it's all good. I mean, we're all human. We all make similar yeah. mistakes. We all go through similar experiences, but that's what makes us human ultimately. And we can yeah. help each other walk through that that pain i think it's just it's an amazing thing um uh i'm i'm curious mark because you've got these two amazing books subtle art and everything is you know <laughs> which is a yeah. mind bending book that i encourage everyone to sort of pick up and read um you go all out in that book man like well done yeah. thank you <laughs> well done <laughs> Um, Thanks. but the subtle art, which is one of my all time favorite books, I read it in two days. Um, firstly, the title, uh, you did something very bold, which not many people actually do on books is you had a, a swear word on the book and yeah. what's the story behind that for those people that don't know. Uh, so it was initially an article and the article was actually, it was kind of a lark. Like it was kind of an accident. Uh, so I, my pro my writing process with the website and with the newsletters is I, I have like a document, like a Google document. Um, then I just, I jot down ideas and notes and stuff as I come across them. And so it's just this massive document with pages and pages of just like random ideas, title ideas, um, links to research papers and, news articles and things like that. And um, I I had this, I don't remember when I wrote it down, but for years, I just had this, this idea of the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Like I put that on that document and um, it, it just, I think it, it probably came from like a drunken conversation with a friend or something. Um, but it, it just sat there for a year or two. I, I knew it was an amazing title, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I, uh, in 2015, end of 2014, beginning of 2015, um, I went through kind of a rough period for a few months. Um, was feeling a little bit depressed, a little bit down. And uh, generally, like when I'm in a bad mood or like not feeling good, I get very sarcastic. <laughs> and kind of ridiculous <laughs> and uh and i needed i needed to write something for the website and i didn't know what to write and I, I didn't really feel like writing anything and and i was kind of looking at my my page of ideas and i came across that the subtle art of not giving a fuck and i was like you know what i should do i should write an article with that is like the most offensive disgusting degrading piece of writing but then I should actually like put really good advice in it so that people like don't know what to do with it. You know, it's like, they think I'm just kidding and trying to get attention, but then it's actually really good advice. What is this? And so <laughs> exactly. So, so, so then I wrote it and it was so over the top and uh, that I, I, once I finished writing it, I was like, I don't even know if I can publish this. Like this is, this is just silly, you know? And, um, and I sent it to, to one of my, my team members, my, one of, 
guy who's at the time he was kind of like my assistant. Um, but he would, I would send articles to him and get feedback and stuff. And, uh, and I sent it to him and he just responded. He was like, you can fire me, but I'm posting this. <laughs> like that was his response. <laughs> Cause I sent it to him. I'm like, ah, this is kind of ridiculous. I don't know if it's very good, but take a look. Let me know what you think. And he was like, he was like, I'm posting this and you're gonna have to fire me to, to make, to, so if you don't want me to. Um, so anyway, he posted it. It went mega viral. Um, it was like, I think got shared over a million times on Facebook at the time. And um, it's like crashed the site like half a dozen <laughs> times. Um, I think it ended up getting like eight or nine million page views in like a week, um, which is just insane. And, uh, and so at the time I was actually, I was about halfway through writing the book. I, I started writing the book in 2014. And, um, and then that, when that article took off, um, my agent, I, I had lunch with my agent and she was like, she was like, this is such a good title. Like, I think we should use this title. And at the time it was like publishers didn't accept books with the F word in the title. Mm. Um, so, so we knew it was going to be a risk. So when we went to, to pitch publishers, the book, we actually presented them with multiple titles to choose from. And we told them, we said, you know, the, the subtle art title is our favorite, but we understand if you're not comfortable. And we, we pitched, I think eight publishers, I think about half of them said that they would, they would not, you know, they offered to publish the book, but they said that they would not put fuck on the cover. Um, but it just so happened that, that Harper Collins, who I, who I did get published with, um, you know, they, they actually came back and they were like, no, we, we want it. We, we think it's, it's controversial, but we think it's cool. Like we're, we're willing to give it a try. Um, so yeah, ended up doing, doing the deal with them. And it, it's so funny in hindsight, because back then, you know, there was a lot of it was a controversial decision, even within the publisher, you know? So there are people at Harper who were like, Oh, but you know, Walmart's not going to carry us. And you know, it's, what are we going to do if we don't get those target sales and, and stuff like that? And, uh, I mean, the book ended up being so popular. It didn't matter. You know, like it's everybody ended up coming and asking for a copy at some point. <laughs> yeah, which over like 13 million copies sold worldwide my goodness, the bestseller list in 16 different countries alone. That's just an incredible feat of achievement, man. Like for one book and your first it's crazy, like, it's, yeah, very, very, um, very proud. I would be. Like it's so good to see that someone like yourself of your caliber that has written this amazing book, self-help book, you could call it, that has helped so many people around the world. And yet here you are, you're down to earth, you're humble. That's, that's impressive, man. So I want to acknowledge you for that and, and say thank you. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. I, I, I think I just recognize how, how ridiculous the whole thing is. Like it's, <laughs> it's, um, I mean, I, I understand that it's, it's not, I can't take credit for everything. Like it's so much 
uh, I mean, I, I think it's a very good book. I think it's well-written. I'm proud of the content. Um, I think Harper actually did a great job with the cover. Um, but it, it, so much of it is timing. You know, it's the cultural moment. Um, it's one thing that does not escape me is that it, the book, the book came out September, 2016. It didn't really start taking off until after Trump got elected. Um, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's no probably not, it's probably not a coincidence. Um, you know, but it, it there's just, there are, there are moments in the culture. Like there, I, I think of it as kind of like surfing, you know, it's like, I got really like a really big wave came along and yeah, I, I wrote it like that takes skill and that takes, you know, work. Um, but, but those big waves don't come for everybody. You mm. know? So I, I was very fortunate. Do you ever think that you'll run out of ideas for books in the future? No, no, the, the ideas, uh, the ideas are actually the easy part for me. It's, it's sitting down and making it good. That's hard. Um, I don't know if it's just my brain or, but it, I have more ideas than I, I ever know what to do with. Mm. Same for me, man. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I just, I just completed the first draft of my, my very first book and I took me two years to write it. Yeah. It was, it was such a, I thought I had this fear in the, in the forefront of my mind that no one's going to read this at all. Like it is. Yeah. Every author thinks that. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. That you're, 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 that. you're, you're, you are, per, you're perfectly on course. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp now. Which is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, uh, it was one of these like uh, fearful things when I've sent it to an editor like the very first thing was I, I even wrote in the email, I apologize for my bad grammar. Like content's there, but my bad grammar, <laughs> I apologize in advance for. Uh, because, yeah. you know, like I, I had all these amazing ideas that I wanted to get out there and I wrote them all down in, in, in this book that I have um, that I've had for quite some time. And it was, it was tough. Like, and and one thing I wanna I wanna ask you, Mark, is for those people that do have an idea, that do wanna make something of that idea, what would you tell them? Uh just start. Start. I, it's funny, people with, with writing books, so many it feels like everybody wants to write a book, you know? And but it, for some reason people feel like they need to wait for the right moment. Mm. And I, I just, there's no reason to wait. And in fact, and again, this com comes back to the, the fact that, you know, the ideas are the easy part. I think most people who don't write, it's similar in business too. People think that people who don't start businesses think the ideas are the hardest part. And it's like people who actually start businesses realize that idea, the idea is the easy part. It's actually fucking doing it. That's like yeah. unbelievably difficult. Uh, it, it's the same with writing books. Like, and the thing about your book idea is that at least for me and, and a lot of other, other authors I've talked to is that probably at least 50% of your ideas act, actually aren't that good, mm. but you don't find out until you sit down and like write 50 pages. Like you have to, you have to sit down and like bang out a couple chapters 
to discover, wait, this doesn't work. This isn't, this shouldn't be a book. Mm. Um, and so for me, like every book I've written, I have to go through that false start process of like writing one or two chapters. You know, it, it's like you start with an outline for a book and you get to chapter three and then you're like, oh, wait, chapter three should be the whole book and everything else should just be a chapter, you know? And it's like, so then you start over again. And it's like, but you can't find that out until you start. Oh, that was so good. <laughs> I, related, <laughs> I related to that so much because the reason, another reason why it took me two years to write the damn book in the first place was I wrote the initial draft that no one read except for my mum out of a place of pain. And it was just like me venting on a page. It was like yeah. literal vomit. And I'm like, when my mom read it, she's like, this is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. So I just, I had to revamp it. So I went back to the drawing board and I put it on the shelf for literally like a couple of months. I didn't want to touch it. So when I went back to it, and the funny thing is at the same time, I had another idea for another book, which I started writing at the same time. So I'm like, no, no, I've got to finish the first book that I started uh, before I begin a second book. So I went back to the first book and I was like, okay, what do I really want to say here? And found that one of the chapters um, that I originally called the, the book title, I'm like, this doesn't work. I'm going to scrap this entirely. And the book became something completely different. And it's something that I'm actually more proud of now than what I originally was, but what you said is, is perfect. You don't know that until you actually start um, yeah. and you flush it out. So, which is great advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark, two more questions for you, man. Cause I, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, this one is my all time favorite question. I, I love asking it at the, at the very end. So imagine with me, it's a hypothetical one. So imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends and your family have all decided to put together a film, the Mark Manson film, the not everything is, is fucked film, uh, everything <laughs> you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, man. Well, I hope it mostly has stuff that I haven't done yet. That's that's one. <laughs> um, so I'm still fairly young, and and I like to think that that my best, not necessarily work, but like best actions are in front of me. Um, you know, I I would like it to be simple. I would I would want it to focus on primarily my relationships. Mm. Um, you know, I, I would like it to focus primarily on, on how I guess I've helped people. Um, you know, so, so if, if the business stuff is in there, I mean, I guess it would be in there. I would want it to be, I wouldn't, I would want it to focus on the readers, um, and, and some of the incredible stories that have come from the readers and, and that, that people have shared with me. But yeah, I, I like to think that that most of it is still in front of me. It's like I said that 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 moving target of finding meaning. Um, you know, the the this my success in the publishing world has been great, and I'm I'm incredibly grateful for it, um, and I'm proud of it. 
but it's, I don't want that to define me. Um, I, I'm, I'm still, um, I, I think I, me personally, now I'm more defined by kind of more mundane things in my life, but I'm also still kind of keeping my eye out of, of things I can do in my life and, and in the world that, um, you know, continue to generate a sense of meaning and purpose for myself, you know, by, beyond just writing more books. I mean, I'm always going to write books. I love books, but, um, I don't want to be like limited to that. Mm. Everyone that Mark Manson has helped. I love it. It's going to be an incredible movie. Um, <laughs> my, my final, it'd be very, very positive, man. Very uplifting. I reckon like if you see all the people, all the millions of people that have been helped by your work, I mean, just say something. I mean, it'd be a, a long watch, but that probably take you another hundred years to watch it but yeah yeah uh my my final question for you now because you're a traveler this is more of a fun question um Mm -hmm. you've you've been to different countries i mean you're you're married to um a brazilian lady who you know the food there i love spanish food my goodness is the best stuff in the world I, i reckon um but what is the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? Weirdest food combination? Oh, man. You mean like weirdest food itself or like combination of food? Because I'm, I'm like, I mean, you forget, I, I'm American. So like, I'll eat anything. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's like, I'll start with a slice of pizza and then have some Thai food and then finish it off with like a creme brulee, you know, like that, that doesn't phase me at all. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a super, I'm not super adventurous when it comes to food. I do like enjoy a wide range of, of cuisine. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not one of those people who gets like super excited about like eating snails or stuff like that i guess the weirdest thing i've ever eaten is i ate ants once um actually sugar covered ants um which was it was at a there's a kind of like a gourmet restaurant in in sao paulo that they do traditional brazilian food and then they have a lot of like amazon dishes and uh one of the the dishes is they bring out like those massive army ants from the amazon Yep. So they're like, they're like as big as your thumb. They bring them out and they're like covered in sugar and encrusted in gold, like gold sugar. Uh, and then you, you eat a couple of them. Um, and there's like usually something on the side, but anyway, it's like really, really tart flavor. Like it's, um, you know, like when you eat like a piece of ginger yep. like between, between sushi. So imagine that like times a hundred, like it's just this, it's like your whole mouth like dries out with like this tart kind of gingery flavor. And um, yeah, super weird. I think that's why I look at that too, to sort of like level it out a little bit, level out the palate for the taste. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the army ant destroys the palate. Like it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an intense experience. Um, and I, I don't need to have them again. I mean, it's not disgusting, but it, I didn't 
particularly enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not that. You're more adventurous with that uh, because I, I wouldn't even go there, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> so well, well done for doing that. Um, but Mark Manson, where can people find you and, and learn more about you? Buy your books, uh, everything like that. Uh, markmanson.net is the website. Check it out. Um, it's been publishing during the pandemic, been publishing pretty much every week. Uh, I have a weekly newsletter that's free every Monday morning. Um, if you just go to markmanson.net slash newsletter, uh, I send out three ideas each, each week to, uh, to, to make your week better. And, um, and then the books are sold literally everywhere you can buy a book. So check them out. He's not hard to find people. Literally, he's not. (laughs) Um, So, Mark Manson, thank you so much for your story, your advice, and for your time in coming on the Storybox podcast today. Absolutely. I don't like this part because it means that sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the Storybox on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Fansom. And don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 